Hey, welcome to the Scrum, GBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Greetings, Peter. Greetings, Adam. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Kevin O'Connor, the Republican candidate for U.S. Senate. More specifically, you're going to hear O'Connor make his case to the unenrolled and even Democratic voters whose support he'll need to beat Senator Ed Markey, the Democratic incumbent. Because here in Massachusetts, as many of you know, there just aren't enough Republicans to carry a statewide candidate to victory. Then you're going to hear Peter's take on O'Connor's pitch. But Peter, before we start, any tantalizing hints of what that take is going to be? Well, I don't know if I want to steal my own thunder. Um, Having watched him in the debate and having listened to your conversation, I like him. I detect strains of um, Scott Brownism in there, but that's a tactical thing, and and that makes sense. But um, I think he's a guy with a future. But let's save it for after the talk. Fair enough. With that, on to my convo with Kevin O'Connor. Kevin, let me start by asking you, as you know, I want to get you to make your pitch for moderate Democratic votes, independent votes in this conversation. But before we get to that, you haven't run for elected office before. And I got to ask you what it feels like at this point in the campaign with just a few weeks to go physically and emotionally to have run a campaign for an office like U.S. Senate after never having done it before? It's wonderful. I, I love it. So I, as you may know, I'm a lawyer by training, and I've, I've, I've been to a lot of trials and arbitrations, and that's that's hard work. So I'm, I was raised by my parents to be a hard worker. I'm a very hard worker, and there's no, there's no harder that I could have worked in my career. Uh, so the, this campaign certainly has its challenges, but in many ways it's easier than being a lawyer, frankly. I spent a lot of very late nights parsing through federal regulations and really tough stuff and trying to explain to a judge (laughs) what what was going on and why my clients should win. So, so this is, it's been a wonderful experience. It's very energizing to meet people. And I feel very blessed to be where I am today. As you know, better than me, it is going to be tough for you to win this election if you only get votes from registered Republicans here in Massachusetts. So what I'm hoping you can do over the course of the next half hour or so is talk me through what you believe the case for Kevin O'Connor for Senate is if you are a Democrat who maybe sees themselves as moderate or more conservative, or if you're an unenrolled voter who, uh, again, sees themselves as somewhat moderate, somewhat conservative, what is the pitch that you want voters like that to be thinking about when they head to the polls or cast their mail-in ballots, as the case may be? So I'm the common sense candidate, right? I, I, I think Senator Markey's really defined himself ideologically with, with uh, uh, the, the, the far end of, of um, his party. And, 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 and he, after 44 years in Congress, is pointing to a, a freshman representative as, uh, to define him. I'm not doing that. I'm, I am standing on my own two feet the way my parents raised me and uh, to think for myself. I'm a common sense candidate. I have married, I have four kids. I live in Massachusetts and I've been a member of the Boston legal community for 30 years. 
So, and, and in that role, I, I was very active in the Bar Association. I was, I was the first diversity and inclusion coordinator in the history of what was then the largest law firm in Boston. I was a co-founder of the, of the diversity and inclusion committee for the Boston Bar Association. I have represented a wrongfully convicted person. I have represented, I, I'm a member of the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribal Supreme Court, and I won the first case in the history of that Supreme Court. I, I'm go, go ahead. I, no, I just, I wanted to hop in right there because there's a whole bunch of things that I either learned about very recently or didn't know about beforehand. By the way, that's the commuter rail rolling through our front yard. That's also gonna happen a, a few times. Um, the wrongful conviction case came up in the debate that we hosted at GBH. So did at least some of your diversity and inclusion work as an attorney. I'm not sure the Mashpee Wampanoag piece came up. So there are three things that I'd love to learn a bit more about. First, can you start by telling me how you came to be active on the diversity and inclusion front as a lawyer? What's the origin story there and what did you end up doing? So I was at a law firm. I was involved in hiring and recruiting. And I was the person who had demonstrated the most commitment to making sure that our law firm was inclusive and that that the that the Boston legal community didn't um, didn't wasn't stale, was open, inclusive, that we were reaching out and we reflected our community and that we made the best of all available talent and 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 communicated to everyone who wanted to work hard and who had legal talent that that they were welcome in our tent. And that's my model politically as well. And I didn't lobby for the position. I, the managing partner just came up and he said, we're, we're going to take on diversity and inclusion and, and we want you to be the person. And so it was, it was, it came out of the blue, but it was based on demonstrated commitment. That was 20 years ago. So um, I feel like my opponent is really late to the game on a lot of these issues. I've been out in front for 20 years and I think it will make a big difference. Since you were active on that, two decades ago, starting two decades ago. To your mind, what made it important to get a more diverse representative legal community? You mentioned that you know it prevented staleness, but I'm hoping you can elaborate on that. It's really talent optimization. So if you if you look at the, say the Red Sox, right? They they go all around the world looking for talent. And, and a law firm and the Boston law firms where, where I work, they're global competitors and we can't afford to do anything less than bring out the best in everyone. And, and when you create an environment where people feel comfortable being themselves, great things happen. Ideas come up to the surface and, and, and people are, are more collegial, more collaborative. And, and that mindset also, I think, makes you a better advocate because you're, 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 even inward, you're looking outward, if you will. You're asking everybody to, to, to think about it from someone else's perspective. And that's ultimately what's most persuasive as a lawyer is, I understand where you're coming from, whether you're speaking to a judge or a jury or a client. I, I'm trying to understand where you're coming from and, and, and let me, let, let's, let's find common ground. Let's explain where we're coming from and, and let's see if we can work together. So that skill set that you want to develop internally also optimizes your performance as 
advocates and business owners. Tell me more about the wrongful conviction case that you mentioned a moment ago. And again, that you mentioned in the debate, because I still don't know the backstory there. So a, I represented a person named Ulysses Charles. He spent 20 years in jail for crimes that he did not commit. It was a, it was a horrible triple, uh, a, a, it was a triple rape in Brighton. So a, a, a dark skinned black man raped three women in Brighton. And it was really an object lesson, I think, because there was this, there were, it was this horrific crime, a lot of publicity, and, and people who were politically oriented within the judicial system, there was this huge outcry that the person needed to be caught and convicted and justice needed to be done. And there, there was rightful um, outcry. It was, it was terrible. But in the, in the rush to judgment, people, and, and this, the, this ties into what the role of judges, the role, of, and, and, and in the rush to judgment, corners were cut and, and they got the wrong person. And, and my client, who was a brilliant person, spent the next 20 years trying to get himself out of jail. And he, it's, it's, you could write a novel about it. It's the most remarkable story. Um, and, and, and a lot of it, most of it wasn't with the police department. It was with the, it was with the, the district attorney's office and the court system and, and, and implicit biases and, and, and th things like that. But ultimately there was, there was some suppression of evidence. And, and then we also had the benefit of advancing technology. So I was asked to take the case on by the Innocence Project because after he was out of jail, because none of the, I mean, I was just a business lawyer. None of the, the very accomplished civil rights attorneys in town were interested in taking the case because they thought he had missed the statute of limitations. So, so it, it, was, it wasn't commercially appealing. And I had a buddy who was at the Innocence Project doing it pro bono, but he said, hey, would you take this guy's case? And, and I, I thought, you got, at that point I had a, a small law firm. <laughs> I was a boutique law firm. My partner was uh, uh, an Ethiopian immigrant who was an associate when I was diversity coordinator and she was my mentee and we left and started our own law firm. And, and we just, thought this is really cool and and we wanted to get involved so we, we 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 took it on and it was it was an incredible experience before we get to the mashpee wampanoag tribal supreme court piece how did the ulysses charles case change the way you think about the criminal justice system broadly speaking if it did it, it may not have uh, i heard you mention a moment ago that Problematic stuff happened not so much at the police level, but more at the district attorney and court level. But and, and, and I don't, I don't want to give anybody a free pass. What I'm saying is, it was it took a village, if you will, to to, to, to get to get to that 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 point. And there, got and, it. So did that change the way you think about the criminal justice system, or had you been, you know, eyes open to the various ways in which the system cannot work for people, and this just proved? stuff that you were aware of before, or was an example of stuff you were aware of before? A little, little both, I would say. I, I had been a diversity and inclusion coordinator at that point. My parents were both from Queens. So Queens, I don't know if you know, it's like, my dad's from Elmhurst, Queens. There's 140 different ethnic groups in the neighborhood. So I, I, I'm, I'm aware of the complexities of, of, of um, racial and ethnic interactions. Um, but, but this was a real lesson. You really, you, you, 
I just through this lived experience, you just saw how there was there was evidence, there was a rush to judgment, and then most importantly, there was almost a calcification, if you will. Once they, they had found the person, it was hard for people to admit that they'd made a mistake. And 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 ultimately that's what we have to do as policymakers sometimes, whether it's the Iraq war, whether, you know, there's times you just have to say, we made a mistake and we gotta we gotta fix it. And 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 the system was really incapable of admitting that it had made a mistake regarding Ulysses Charles. And, 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 and it took people of courage and conviction, most especially Ulysses Charles himself, who was at one point offered the opportunity to walk out of jail if he would just admit the crime. And he didn't, he, he didn't blink an eye, he said, hell no. I will see you in court. <laughs> and he, and he, he, he lost the second consideration of it, and then he came back a third time. So he was just, he was really resolute and a brilliant person. And it, the whole thing was um, tremendously tragic, but there, there, there was triumph ultimately. There's not as much time for us to talk as I would like. So let me try to speed it up, although everything you've had to say so far has been fascinating. Give me real quickly the backstory on, on your work with the Mashpee Wampanoag Court. Uh, so the Tribal Supreme Court, I was one of the first 10 members of the Tribal Supreme Court. They had a case. It was a sovereign immunity case. They needed lawyers to represent members of the Tribal Council against someone else on the Tribal Council. And the court had just been formed. And our case ended up being, I think it was my second case with them. We won the first case. There was a second case. And it went to the Tribal Supreme Court. And we won that too. So we made a little bit of history. I also had a, another lawsuit this year that was against the Trump administration. It was an immigration case this past November. It was um, it, it, it was involved. I represent a client of mine that is founded by Indian immigrants. They had someone in India who they'd brought over. It's a biotech firm. They had gone. That person had been allowed to come over on what's called an L1 visa, and then and then was sent back. And there was sort of a reconsideration in 2017. They went to Senator Markey for help. He tried, he couldn't help them. They came to me, and at this point, I knew I'd be a Republican candidate. And I brought the case on an emergency basis against the administration. And the opposing counsel was Andrew Lelling, the United States Attorney of, 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 for Massachusetts. And we brought an emergency basis, just like the ballot access case, and they rolled. We've got 100% of what we wanted. So Senator Markey was not able to help them. We got everything we wanted. That person, J.P. Srivastava, is back in the United States and working, and he's doing great work, um, including work on Project Warp Speed. So um, forthright advocacy, purposeful uh, advocacy. And it wasn't wrathful. I laid the facts out, as I always do. And um, I'm always torn when someone tells me something big that I had not known. I'm always torn between trying to fake it and pretend like I, I knew and being honest. And in this case, I have to be totally honest. I was completely unaware of that case. Is that something that you have talked about on the campaign trail or not? And it doesn't, by the way, if you haven't, that doesn't excuse me for not knowing about it because I could have done research and learned it. But has that been a part of your pitch at all? Because it seems to me like it's a an important thing for voters to know. 
Absolutely. So what I've learned in this process is that there's a level of introduction that you have to do. So in the primary, because I'm an unknown candidate, I had to have a very simple message that focused on the Republican voters who would participate in a primary. And some of the, many of them are independents, but they typically vote Republican. And so my message was to them, and I needed to not overwhelm them with information. So as we get to this general election, there'll be more fleshing out as, as to who I am. And I got a record that, that I think is, is big tent inclusive, that um, reflects the, the, the best traditions of, of Massachusetts, the Massachusetts legal community and, and our country. And uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a coalition builder. I'm someone who is not afraid to take on big challenges and, um, and I'm a happy warrior. I want to ask you, because I think it's an issue raised by the case you just mentioned about how you would see yourself acting as a senator vis-a-vis -vis the Trump administration. But before we do that, you mentioned being a coalition builder a moment ago. For people who aren't familiar with the work that you did to change the state's signature gathering requirements during the COVID pandemic, can you offer a brief synopsis of the work you did on that and the people that you worked with? Yes, my dad came down with COVID-19 in April. My mom was my most prolific signature gatherer. I needed 10,000 ink signatures in order to get on the ballot. So it was not feasible with the COVID-19 shutdown lockdowns and, and all the appropriate distancing and all that. So I wrote the legislature a polite letter and asked them to modify the requirements so that we could accommodate public health and, and democracy. They ignored me. And I, so I teamed up with two Democrats, Robbie Goldstein, who was a progressive Democrat running against um, running for Congress and Melissa Brower Smith, who was running for the state legislature and we brought an emergency class action, just like the, the, the immigration case. This one was before the Supreme Judicial Court. We, we, we teamed up as class action on behalf of all candidates, and we won. The court found that the, the legislature's failure to act violated the US Constitution and the Massachusetts Constitution. And as a result, 40 candidates in both parties, including a lot of women candidates, a lot of female candidates and first time candidates, got on the ballot in, in a period of crisis. So it was, and it was wonderful. We worked great together, the three of us, because we were focused on substance and getting things done. And they're two really talented people and, and really good hearted people. So I was trying to find the most current numbers that I, I could for the president's favorable or unfavorable ratings or approval, disapproval ratings. And the best I could do was a mass ink poll from late July that showed that two thirds of the state's residents view the president unfavorably or viewed him unfavorably at that point in time. For Massachusetts residents who do not view the president favorably, how would you comport yourself if you win election in relation to the administration? And I'm especially interested, if you can, in any areas where looking back at the past four years, had you been a senator where you might have broken with the party as a whole to say, no, I don't think that the president should be doing X, Y, or Z. So I, I, I will focus on results, not resistance. I, as I've said all along, I can work with Joe Biden and will and we'll happily do it. And I've worked on a bipartisan basis already this year. In the last year, I've gotten more done vis-a-vis -vis the Trump administration and on a bipartisan basis than Ed Markey's gotten in eight years in the Senate. I have to mention 44 years. So that's exactly how I'll conduct myself with, with purpose, with forthrightness, focused on substance. 
and working with people on, on moving coalitions. So when I agree with the administration, I'll agree with them, I'll work with them. When I disagree or when it conflicts with the best interests of the people of Massachusetts, I'll do that. I'm, I'm 58 years old and I've had a 30 year career. I'm, this is not a, I'm doing this for the right reasons. I've promised to serve two terms and, and I wanna get things done for Massachusetts and I'm not gonna ever carry water for any politician ever. And I, I don't care who it is, it's, uh, the, the, and it's not meant with disrespect to anyone. And I think my campaign, if you look at it, reflects that. I, I'm not the handpicked person of anyone. Nobody drafted me to run. I, I saw a need. I, I believe that I could be in a position, I thought I could win, I believe I will win, but, but I'm, I'm a big boy and I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be conducting myself in a subservient mindset vis-a-vis -vis any other senator or any president. And this is a six year term. So this term will outlast the first term or the next term of either president. And I, I, I recognize that power. I recognize the power that our state has. And people, just as I'll have to reckon with them, they'll have to reckon with me and with us. I don't want to belabor it. And that was a very forceful statement that you just made. But just so I'm clear, are there any areas from the past four years that you would point to, again, for voters who might be weighing casting a vote for you, where if you'd been in the Senate, you would have broken with the administration? Well, I think right away they came out of the gate very rocky with the um, with the 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 the, the bans or whatever, where there was a really bad record right up front. There was there was just no room for that, uh, and 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 so that that was rocky. Um, I think ultimately the the president does have very broad discretion, and I think there were some substantial reasons for for what was done. But the preliminary manner was disturbing, and the courts I think did the right thing by saying, "Whoa, you can't do that, or you can't have that sort of stuff in in the administrative record." Uh, I, the the president is a, an extemporizer, if you will, in terms of foreign policy. So one thing that I like a lot about him is that that I I think he's more prudent in terms of application of force, and he's made noises about peace and things like that. But when he goes off to Kim Jong-un and walks across the line and things like that, I don't agree with that. Uh, you know, like I, I just think I would, I would go about business differently. I, far be it from me to tell him what to do. He's had a lot of success in life, but, but uh, you know, that would be something I'd do very differently. And I think also on climate change, right? Like I know the president has, he, he, he sort of says blunt things. He's got tremendous appeal, but I, I think it's a substantial challenge. And what we want, we don't want Senator Markey's bumper stickers and ill-founded plans, but we want, people want to know we're stewards of our planet and we, and we have a real challenge here. And we want people who, um, who care and are, are going to be focused on, on doing it in a manner that is, um, that keeps our economy going and growing and creating opportunity and solves the problem. And, and so I, I would go about that in a, in a more collaborative fashion. And then internationally, finally, like I, th I think that, I believe that the job of US senators to represent Massachusetts and the job of the federal government is to represent Americans, right? You, you, we have to take care of our country, but within recognition of that, and we should stand up always for the rights of American workers and American, the American economy. But, but, but a lot of problems that we have need to be solved working with other countries. And, and, and I would always be mindful of our 
our ally alliances and collaborative sol problem solving on global problems. If you become a senator, what do you think your relationship would be with Elizabeth Warren, for starters, and the entire Massachusetts delegation? I'll do everything I can to get along with them and work with them. Senator Warren is a really substantial, impressive person. I've had the privilege of working for just fantastic lawyers, some of whom, and I've had a lot of friends who were students of hers. So I, I hold her in high regard as a, in, in terms of substance. We disagree on a lot of policies, and and sometimes we're stylistically different, you know. But 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 she would be my partner, and there's a lot of common ground. And I want people to really understand how much better how much better served we'd be if we had Senator Warren and the Democratic Caucus advocating for Massachusetts. Senator O'Connor in the Republican caucus. It's never a good idea to have all your eggs in one basket. And that's what we have right now. I will be working in collaboration with the other, with the other senator and the representatives to make sure that we have a bipartisan voice in Washington. And that's that over time is will serve us best. You and I had a conversation the other day, not a reported conversation, which you made the, the much the same point, the same kind of statements. And I feel like when I hear you talk about Warren, your respect is palpable, despite the contrast that you draw. Um, also, the first time I talked to you was when we talked about that signature lawsuit. And, you know, I, I know that Robbie Goldstein was running at Steve Lynch from the left, and you guys apparently worked together extremely effectively to solve this. I have a question for you when it comes to bipartisanship. I was looking back at some of the old press releases that I got from your campaign before this interview. And there was one that I, I saw that I wanted to ask you about. Um, in it, you said it was a, a fundraising pitch at the end of September. And you said, send a message to Markey and the rest of the Beacon Hill radical Democrats that were sick of politics as usual. My question, I think, is I hear you saying you're ready to work with Elizabeth Warren and the rest of the delegation. And I know that you worked with Robbie Goldstein. Um, and oh, shame on me. I'm forgetting the name of the other woman who was involved in that lawsuit. Will you remind me? Melissa Brower-Smith. Thank Melissa you. Brower -Smith. I appreciate it. So I guess my question for you is, when you refer to radical Democrats or Beacon Hill radical Democrats, who are you thinking of? Because there's clearly other Democrats who you're ready and enthusiastic to work with. Well, this isn't a pillow fight. So you hear tough rhetoric from both sides and you have purposeful rhetoric at, at, at given points. And, and anyone that's run at this level will tell you that they don't, they don't control, I'm not disavowing any statements, but I don't, you know, like every single statement doesn't go out with like, so, so there's messaging that's intended for, for certain points. But the, the bottom line is, and, and you see it from Senator Warren, very tough rhetoric, but she's purposeful. And I, I hope and expect that she will work with me. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not, we were talking, there was someone was talking about bringing a soup ladle to a gunfight or something like that. I got, I'm a tough person. I'm going to stand up and, and I hope that's come through here. I go into court and I say, my client should win and you, your client should lose and you're wrong. You wrongfully convicted my client or you did whatever. And, and you say you have adult conversations that are forthright and purposeful. And but then but then ultimately you got to get things done and you work with people. I never burn the bridge. I never burn the bridge. I'm always professional. Let me ask you one question in closing and then I'll let you go. During our GBH debate, you were asked to size up the governor's performance on COVID and the president's. And if I recall correctly, tell me if I'm wrong, you gave them both incompletes. 
as you know, people in Massachusetts think really highly of the way the governors handled the pandemic. I think in May, we were part of a poll that gave them an 84% approval rating on that. At the same time, they thought very little of the president's performance. They gave him a 25% approval rating. Can you just flesh out briefly what it is that you like and don't like about both men's handling of this very unusual situation that we're in? So I've given them both incomplete grades, and I think that's really important that we stay there. This is incomplete. We are mid, we're, we're, we're still amidst a, a real challenge. I'm optimistic that we will get through it, but, but there's a lot of work to be done. So there'll be a lot of hindsight assessment and all that, but we're mid game and everybody should be focused. Nobody should be taking victory laps. Uh, the, 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 the president, I think, has, has did things well in terms of shutting down the travel, uh, I think Dr. Fauci said in March that, that his view was that everything had been done, that it was actually a, 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 an impressive effort, hardworking effort on the part of the administration. I think Secretary Mnuchin has done a good job of making sure that on a bipartisan basis, stimulus was coming through. Uh, I think the, the surge in equipment was constructive, meaning we didn't run out of equipment ultimately. Um, and then I, I think Project Warp Speed will prove to have been a success. So those are all good things. The president and I are very different people, and I I, I saw this as a moment to be soothing. And and but that's that's who he is. And 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 so it's we're, we're just different styles. Far be it from me to tell him he's had a lot of success and a lot of endeavors in life. And with respect to the governor, I think the governor has been soothing. Like that's that's been a good part of it. I think we have been um, unduly focused on, w w I would open up faster. I believe that the collateral consequences of these shutdowns are real and immediate. I have a fourth grader and an eighth grader, and I can tell you they are being academically harmed. And, and, and inner city kids in first or second grade learning to read right now are being harmed. And, and, and our schools are the way that children communicate with the outside world. So it's the teacher, the pat on the back, or it's the teacher hearing, like seeing a child who's could be subject to some domestic situation that's harmful, that, that, that those are devastating effects. And opening up is the way that we that we make sure that people get the, the kind of support that they need. 75% of all mental health for children comes through schools, right? And then, and then you, you look at the effect of shutdowns on the small businesses, the anxiety, the suicide hotline reporting, the collateral consequences are enormous. Right now we have a dashboard that's reported by the media and it does not reflect the full scope of the shutdowns. I think the World Health Organization has finally just come out and said, shutdowns are really, really, they're devastating. And there's a lot of long-term effects. Now I wanna be clear though, that back in March, the shutdowns were appropriate because we had much less visibility as to what was going on. We needed to understand the consequences of this virus. My father almost died of it. So I, my cousin did die of it. He was a firefighter and, or you know, died with comorbidities. So it's, so, but, but in March and April, we needed to understand that we have much better understanding now. It preys upon compromised organs and vulnerable organs, whether due to age or some other condition. And, that's, and we need to protect that population. I, I just feel like we can open up faster. And I, and I would like to do that and, and, and put more resources toward protecting the vulnerable.
Kevin O'Connor, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Really appreciated it. Enjoyable conversation. Good luck down the home stretch. Thank you so much. So, Peter, what is your takeaway from that conversation? Adam, my primary takeaway is that I wonder how suited to the Republican Party O'Connor is. Um, now, O'Connor was once a Democrat, and he left the party to become a Republican. Uh, I think he's suited to be a Republican voter. I wonder if he's suited to be a Republican candidate. Um, because to be a Republican candidate is to front for um, a whole bunch of ideas and policies that could often be seen as anathema to uh, decent human beings. And O'Connor strikes me as a very decent guy. I'll tell you, I was really struck by two things in particular. One is recycling the old Scott Brown argument that um, really does appeal to me that Massachusetts should not put all its eggs in one basket um, and therefore would be wise to have a Democrat and Republican in the U.S. Senate. In principle, I would agree with that um, because you can sort of tend to the home fires no matter who is in the White House. As we become increasingly polarized nationally, I think it's a, a rare state that can pull that off. But it's a good talking point. I was also struck by the way he dealt with Elizabeth Warren, who's very popular here. You know, he eschewed the whole scorched earth, Pocahontas, Elizabeth Warren is the devil incarnate, and said, you know, very politely, She's a, a super bright woman. We have our differences. I have no doubt we could work well together. Um, to me, that's a really mature political answer. I agree with you, incidentally. And when he said that, I found myself wondering, oh, my God, what are registered Republicans in Massachusetts going to say when they hear that? Are, are they going to you know, view that as a wise approach for their candidate to be taken to win statewide? Or is it just anathema to them to have a standard bearer who talks about, you know, one of their great nemeses in that way? And I don't know the answer. Yeah, I, I mean, th that's what I mean about him being a great Republican, him being a suitable Republican voter. I question him being a Republican candidate. Um, listen, running for Senate is a terrific platform for him to put himself before the voters. Now, where that will go, I don't know. And I suppose um, the conventions of political journalism require us to say, who knows? Maybe he'll do better than we think. Maybe he'll win. Um, I'm not going to hang by my toenails waiting for that to happen. <laughs> so for me, the question is very much, what's his next step? Um, and it's, listen, it's way too soon to worry or think about what the next step is. It is, but I found myself wondering the exact same thing. And obviously, it depends in large part on what happens this fall, right? You know, if Trump goes down to defeat in a historic landslide loss, 
the GOP brand could be very, very different the next time there's a big race that Kevin O'Connor might be a participant in. So who knows? Who knows where we're headed? I should mention, incidentally, you talked about him shifting from Republican to Democrat. If my memory serves, I remember talking with the Dover town clerk about this. I think he became unenrolled, left the Democrats to become unenrolled in 2010, uh, and then actually became a member of the GOP in 2017. To me, as a fellow independent voter, um, that stands him in good stead. It, it, to me, it shows a journey. Someone who's thought about what he was doing, and I mean thought about it in a personal sense, not just in a politically viable sense. Um, you know, that shows a journey with being disaffected with um, what I'm sure he would call the excessive progressivism of the Democratic Party and him looking for a more congenial political home. And with that, another installment of The Scrum has come to a close. Thanks to Kevin O'Connor for joining us and, as always, to you for making time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already. Rate us while you're at it and talk back to us, please. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. And Peter, you are? At Kadzis, K-A-D-Z-I-S. Adam, let me interject here. The next scrum is going to be all about the Electoral College, just in time for the big November election. So I'd urge everyone to tune in yet again. Be there for that next week. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.